0: What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies, and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidit Agarwal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode, one, two, one, I'm speaking with, no, I have handed over the reins to my friend, James Steinan, and we are breaking some special news. SquarePeg. The VC firm, James is the principal at, have just invested in the startup Chronicle. And what you're about to hear is a special conversation where James and Mayuresh Patole, the founder of Chronicle, unpack Mayuresh's sunrise in India, dealing with extremely poor eyesight till age 12, entering one of the most prominent global universities based in India, yep, and a deep dive into what, why, and how Chronicle will allow you to create impactful presentations and unleash inner storyteller. Prior to every episode, I personally listened back to the episode to ensure it's world-class. And I must admit with this one, James might be hot in my heels with his top-notch hosting ability and Mayoresh oozes inspiration and with every answer, creates a visual in your mind that is just majestic. And to add some spice to this, I interviewed James and Mayoresh individually, quickly, to share their memories of first meeting each other. The elusive first date between a founder and an investor. James, we're announcing SquarePeg's investment in Chronicle. The listeners are about to hear this conversation. Why don't we take the listeners back to that first meeting, the first date, as we like to call it. What are your memories and how did it happen?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's... Kind of an interesting one, because over the course of COVID, I'd gotten really used to uh, Zoom meetings with people. And then uh, my colleague Jethro had been in touch with uh, the founder, Mayoresh, and, and was, you know, he's just around the corner in near Burke Street Bakery, um, a couple of streets away. And he said, why don't we go you know, visit? And so we walked over to Mayoresh's house where he's living, and he's living and working in the same place and we ended up just hanging out in this kind of courtyard area and talking and I was immediately struck by just how thoughtful Mayoresh is and you'll hear it in the interview but he is one of the deepest thinkers you're ever going to meet and what he was talking about was something that's very close to my heart which is how we tell stories Uh, and that manifests often in giving presentations, you know, at work, whether it's, you know, hey, here's where this project is up to, or here's I'm pitching this startup, but it's something that, you know, is very, very close to my heart as a former founder, former management consultant, you know, storytelling presentations uh, in my blood. And so here I am listening to this very deep and thoughtful person uh, and you know, sitting in his house, kind of, you know, seeing how he lives, and it was just—it was a very compelling experience. So I, I hope that you you hear, you know, what I was so excited about in the in the interview.
0: We just heard from James talking about his memories of the first date. I'd love my for the listeners to hear about your reflections of being on the founder side. What are your memories of the? initial interactions with SquarePeg and any anecdotes that stand out?
2: It's really casual and friendly. Um, we were, as Chronicle, we were not actively raising at this point and so were quite heads down. So it was very serendipitous to um, to get a coffee with like James and Jethro. I remember we went back to um, where I was living in, in Surrey Hills. And um, it just turned out to be like a really exciting, like invigorating conversation. Uh, the first time I met Paul was also very interesting. I actually didn't know who Paul was. And um, I, I was just like very open and authentic with him uh, and saw him do the same. And I think that was that was really interesting. It, it was an interesting first conversation because uh, I had spent the night before designing this like new version of Chronicle. I hadn't even shown it to the team. So the SquarePack team was the first people who saw that. Um, And I remember coming back home, going to my flatmate's like room and just sitting on the floor and telling him I just loved presenting in person. Uh, So that's really how the relationship started. Um, And it's still like that. I think it's still very friendly and natural and authentic and honest. Uh, I don't think we have the same power dynamic that founders and VCs usually have. Um, We've all just like really kept it uh, very, very casual. So I really love that about SquarePay.
0: I hope you enjoy this great conversation between James and Mayresh. And if you have ideas for other iconic doors we should bring on in a similar format, send me a note. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy.
2: It's funny. It's my it's my first podcast
1: ever. Oh, awesome. I'm. So, this is great. Okay. <laughs> well. For those of you who have ever hated powerpoint this is the podcast episode for you i'm delighted to introduce mayoresh from chronicle and uh, i'd like to start mayoresh by asking you where were you born and where do you live now
2: um i live in sydney right now uh, i've been in sydney for the last four and a half years uh, and just sort of fell in love with the place over over time i was born in um in Nasik, which is which is a small town, like relatively small, uh, near Mumbai. Uh, It's like 200 kilometers from Mumbai, quite conservative, like grew up in a uh, in a pretty conservative sort of closed environment, Um, very little contact or like touch with how the how the world works and how people think outside of that sort of small little town. Uh, I think the, the city has changed now quite a bit. So maybe people won't relate to it anymore. But uh, when I was growing there, it was just like uh, just like a closed-off world. Uh, I didn't even have a computer till I was like in grade ten. So yeah, um, yeah quite quite a quite an interesting sort of uh,
1: childhood. Yeah, like growing up uh, where you did. I know that there's kind of a really interesting story as to how you became obsessed with visual design, right? So. Uh, we're going to get later to the parts of the story where you decide to destroy one of the, the most hated pieces of software in the world, which is PowerPoint. Uh, but for now, I really want to dig into, you know, you were a kid, uh, you know, outside of Mumbai growing up and something happened to you, which changed how you see the world. I wonder if you could tell us what that is.
2: Yeah, I think I've had a bunch of like inflection points in my life. Um... I think uh, the one that you're referring to is, is surely probably one of the most profound experiences for me. Um, so I was, uh, for, for everyone else and for broader context, essentially, um, I was born with extremely poor eyesight and I still have really bad eyesight. So I, I, might, I have like minus 14, minus 13.5 power in both my eyes. So if I take my contacts off, I'm pretty much uh, completely blind. Um, The funny part about it is that I was born like that uh, and and it sort of like increases over time so um, my my, my eyesight when I was a kid was like already pretty bad so I had no baseline of what normal looks like and so it took about 12 years, almost half of my life uh, for me to realize and for people around me to realize that I can't see properly. Uh, and so by the time it got detected, it was so bad that I could barely see anything. Like I, I think my power was six and eight at the time it, it got, it sort of got detected. And then we started correcting it with glasses and, and everything.
1: And so so for people who don't know what six and eight means, like what does that mean in terms of, you know, if you were to, uh, you're sitting in a room, you wake up, you, you sit up out of bed, what can you see? Can you see like the at side table next to you? At six, you
2: are like pretty much like, blind like you can't see anything like if
1: so it's just literally the whole world is a blur to you
2: yeah you can't you can't see anything pretty much and i think because it progressively got there i feel like i formed a system around it um i i could i could pretty much navigate my house i there were there were there were things about me that one could look back now and 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 make sense of which is like i would watch the tv from like really close I would always sit like really up front in, in school. I I had developed this like way of just, I wouldn't look at the blackboard. I would like listen. And and it it, it, would, it was all of these like small little things that, that had become a system. Uh, but I just didn't know. I thought everyone else kind of perceives the world in the same way. And then I remember distinctly the day um, my sister noticed that like, I'm, I just have like a lot of trouble seeing. And she tried to test it with like, with like making me try to read words uh, and quickly realize that this is not normal, uh, which is funny because my parents are both doctors, uh, so I'd really pulled off something for quite quite a long time.
1: So your parents are both physicians, but they didn't notice that you literally couldn't see, and and it was your sister who who, who found that out. Yeah, my
2: parents are both gynecologists. Like we have our own hospital. I think it's just like the the, the kind of world that I grew up in. Uh, getting like regular tests or so on like that that's not that wasn't the thing at least back then even in, in a household of like doctors uh, and so somehow never got tested for my eyesight um, up and until almost like 12 uh, and then when it got detected and when I got glasses for the first time like my world just went ultra HD for like in one
1: day. So, just what, what was that feeling like so you you've kind of had progressively worse eyesight to the point where you literally can't yeah. see anything you've, you've built up all these coping mechanisms over time to the point where people aren't really noticing but then you finally get you know the the treatment you need what what is that like you know as a do you say you were about 12 right what's that like as a 12 year old yeah it was pretty
2: overwhelming actually in the beginning uh i think it's at, the, at the start it was just scary mm. um every because like with short-sightedness every surface looks blurry so everything looks everything blends into this sort of there are no boundaries you don't see any edges really Mm -hmm. and so my vision was just like a blur everything was super smooth it was Mm. kind of like the apple aesthetic from today. Uh, it's when you pull down the, the, the top bar and everything blurs out in the background. That's what m- my vision was and still is essentially. Um, and so when I when I first got to see everything just looked so sharp that I just constantly thought I'm going to like I'll fall and I'll die because something that yeah. like pierced me. That was the initial sort of reaction. And then slowly I think uh, I think it turned into this um, from from a bit m- bit of anxiety it turned into this like feeling of appreciation of beauty of the world because I, I saw the moon for the first time when I was 12. Well, I saw stars I saw my parents faces like those expressions Saw so my own like expressions for the first time and like truly started digesting
1: that. Yeah that's really interesting mm-hmm. but of course you were also you know a uh someone who was growing up in a place outside mumbai you were trying to get into university i imagine you know the the pathways to you know being an ambitious smart person the pathways open to you uh perhaps were less around how do we create a beautiful relationship with uh all the beautiful things in the world and perhaps more around, you know, academia and other things. I'm wondering, as you kind of thought about university and you were in that kind of time of your life, how are you balancing on one hand this appreciation for beauty and on the other hand, your ambition to kind of go and and do big things in the world? It's
2: a good question now, like in hindsight, but it never felt like that growing up because um, this whole aspect of like, um, well, I, I don't know if we should call it like an artistic or creative sort of experience. I, I was always like a bit creatively inclined, like I, I started painting and drawing uh, right around when I started seeing and and it turned into this like obsession almost, I, I never stopped after that. But I feel um, that didn't change who I was and what my journey was, I was always very academic and I think that comes from the kind of family that I, I come from. So. A bit about like the the crazy family that I grew up in. Um, so my mom and dad are both both doctors. Like I said, uh, they're both exceptionally they're they're geniuses. I think uh, it's worth calling out just their journeys. My dad kind of broke the glass ceiling for his family. Uh, grew up in a really small sort of uh, family uh, of with with nine siblings. Um, was the true? first person who really took that family out of where they were. Uh, and and kind of sorted sorted everyone out my mom's a superwoman She's just she's extraordinary it's hard to compete with her uh she is a gynecologist as well um they they both run this hospital but my mom started this psychol- psychology sort of practice recently she went and studied that when i was in uni just because her patients needed that and got like two gold medals started teaching while she was studying um, she, she's, she's just like exceptionally talented. So it was always, um, a very competitive sort of household to grow up in, uh, kind of difficult in, in some ways. My sister's, uh, like, like that as well. She's very academic, just finished a PhD recently. Uh, she was very good at school and five years ahead of me. So, uh, there was always that kind of expectation. I was, I was good at school as well. Like I, I, I had always been good at like, um,
1: at at like studying and and just exams and and stuff like that yeah how were the expectations communicated to you or was it just via osmosis because you know everyone else in the family had done such brilliant things was it was it was it made clear to you here's what we expect from you or was it just kind of like in the ether oh it was like it was pretty like explicit i mean um
2: this is why i said like the artistic side of it was just my own kind of side passion, uh, which is why it never felt like a journey to me. My, my main journey was always my academics. Um, I always thought growing up that I, I also pursue medicine because I just grew up around so much of that. Uh, both my sister and I ended up becoming engineers, which is which is funny. But um, uh, my parents never really pressured us into anything. Uh, but it was just that that atmosphere. I think uh, mm-hmm. like a very explicit atmosphere. My my mom was very hands on. She would sit with like both my sister and I um, throughout like throughout the week while managing the hospital, uh, make sure that we are we are doing everything like properly. Uh, I haven't really seen anyone else being that hands on and involved. Like she would be on top of everything that we were we were studying. She would know what we know, what we don't know. Uh, it's quite crazy to like look back at that and think, um, that's, that's sort of how we, how we grew up.
0: Hey, we'll be back to the episode in a moment. I really, really wanted to let you in on a secret. Keep this to yourself. We're working on a special series across our curiosity center products. We've locked in 60% of our sponsors. And if you and your company want to partner, reach out before it's too late. My details are in the show notes. Now, back to the episode.
1: I look at your progression and it's very interesting because it is this more traditional engineering academic path, but at each part along the journey from when you were 12, you seem to be maintaining this other interest and this other life around, as you put it, this beautiful equation around beauty and and storytelling and at various different times you seem to kind of make these jumps so I want to talk about perhaps the first jump and maybe to, to set the scene you can tell us what is IIT and how important is it in the kind of Indian and, and global academic ecosystem
2: yeah IIT is Indian Institute of Technology uh, they are the sort of um um they are the seminal institutes, like the front-running institutes of engineering in the country. Uh, they're probably one of the hardest uh, colleges to get into, just because of how competitive it is, and therefore kind of self-selects for this this crop of like students that are that are really smart, and um, mo- most of them are like amazing. I, I think that was probably another really strong inflection point in my life. Spending five years in in IIT Bombay. Um, I think it it actually changed who I am completely. Um, I not only met and was surrounded by like extremely smart people. met my co-founder there. Uh, but I, I kind of started questioning my belief system because I come from this small town. I'd never seen the rest of the world. Um, and And so the way I thought, the way I fundamentally thought about the world changed a lot. Uh, and I think that's what IIT truly does. It is it is a pretty um, it is a high caliber institute. Uh, people learn a lot and people pursue academics quite deeply there. I spent a year doing that as well. But I think truly what 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 leads to that institute producing some of the best uh, amazing leaders in in the world, I would say, uh, is is just the fact that you're surrounded by just really crazy minds all the time that push your thinking.
1: Uh, I mm-hmm. think that was. That was a magical experience. for all the australians who don't really know you know about iit um you know maybe if you could take us through like one how many people are trying to get into iit every every year and how many are they taking and and who are some of the famous alumni that perhaps we wouldn't we would know yeah i think
2: um I think about a million people uh, apply for like appear for the exam uh, and then it's like a rank based system and then uh, IIT Bombay, Delhi, uh, Madras. There are like seven old IITs that were created right after the country got independence. They are the highest sort of um, they, those those fill up first. So IIT Bombay and Delhi usually get
1: the first eight hundred students. Eight hundred out of one million. Uh, that, that's the kind of ratio we're talking about. And um, and so some of the folks who we know who who are kind of IIT grads. Yeah, a lot
2: of the CEOs that you see around, like. Sundar Pichai is like an IIT uh, Madras grad, I think. Um, uh, Prag, the CEO of Twitter, was an IIT Bombay graduate, uh, not very far from when I was in the institute. Um, lots of these like global CEOs that you see around, uh, they are from IITs. It also produces this like extraordinary set of computer science graduates. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: computer science is probably
2: like the top, um, discipline because all the top rankers
1: choose that here you are in the most prestigious engineering college potentially you know one of the most prestigious engineering colleges in the world certainly kind of an absolute standout um, you know from uh, you know, for, for your path what but now you start doing something a bit different you know you're 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 studying the academics but something else starts happening that's a bit a bit different and not something that you would expect what what starts happening for you yeah i think
2: this will go on to become sort of like the theme of my life and i i still hadn't realized it either so about in the in in the first year i was still in my shell and i was still the same person that i was back in in um in my second year i started um like I developed this interest in design. Um, there were two things that I, I learned. One was information design. So I took up a course in, in the institute. There, there was a design school in, in IIT, but it was there was only a master's program back then. They have now started a bachelor's program. Uh, where I used to attend some of the classes that the master's students would, would go to. Uh, so I picked up a course on information design. Uh, and then the other thing I picked up was UI UX design. And, this was right around when this startup boom in, in India was happening uh, I found myself right at the epicenter of it because IIT Bombay was where it was all like was unfolding really uh, and so a lot of my college seniors were doing startups um, I was very interested in in UI design and um, and and so I just started practicing uh, practicing that started helping seniors with their sort of projects their their startups and would basically design products and, and help people launch those out in the market. It was quite a form like foundational learning for me. Uh, in some ways I was pursuing this creative side of uh, of thinking, but I think what helped me, and I, I, I genuinely hadn't realized this back then, was I feel the true power in, in any kind of like design comes from problem solving and uh, I was always on one side trying to solve problems in a very academic structured mathematical way almost uh, and on the other side i had this uh, more free flowing kind of creative energy where i wanted to package things and and tell stories and and sort of um, be a bit more visual about it and, and, and add my own aesthetic uh, but yeah i i picked up design and it became this like sort of obsession almost, I,
1: I would spend all my day just doing design. Let me jump in and, and kind of set the stage. So you, you're in the middle of the epicenter of this startup boom. Uh, you're surrounded by young geniuses. They're all starting to come to you, or a bunch of them are starting to come to you around, hey, I've got this startup, I've got this presentation, how can I kind of package it up? You're spending all your time uh, for you know these kind of little workshops, six or seven people, and people are coming along, and people are starting to say, "How are you doing this? You know, like what 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 tool are you using? This isn't PowerPoint. What what is it?" Not too long after that, it goes from six or seven people to hundreds of people, and you start needing to kind of book out huge lecture halls. So how does that happen (laughs) what what's what's going on there what what's kind of driving that it's
2: actually it's the nuance there is exactly what you said i think i was doing ui design it's very like product design it's about interactions and because i was spending so much time in in like thinking about stuff from an interaction design standpoint even when i started making presentations both for my own like academic presentations for like sometimes I helped founders with their pitch decks. Those presentations naturally became like the kind of like perspective I applied to product design is what I brought to those presentations as well. And I saw that that works really, really well. And I just didn't stop. I did that everywhere. Every single presentation I made, I I just sort of like applied the same interaction design sort of principles to it. And so. Um, the, 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 bit that you're referring to is actually my last workshop that I conducted in IIT Bombay. So at the end of each of these workshops, uh, where I would teach like design basics or, or just fundamentals of like color theory or stuff like that. I would keep getting asked this question, which is how am I making these presentations because they, they looked completely different. Uh, and so I figured I'll schedule the last workshop on, on that. I titled it How to Make Kick Ass Presentations. Uh, still, this like embarrassing YouTube video, uh, hour long YouTube video of me talking about it. Um, I, I, I really hadn't dissected what people were truly asking at that point, uh, but I figured fine, like if everyone wants to know, I'll talk about this topic. So I scheduled that. And that day, instead of the five, six people, 300 people lined up outside the hostel. Uh, and I think that was, that was a bit crazy. I wasn't expecting that either. Uh, so we moved it to the lecture theater and, and I ran it like twice that day.
0: Back to the episode in a moment. We've been very fortunate to feature some of the brightest and most relatable minds. Holly Ransom, President Obama's chief interviewer in episode 44, New South Wales 24 economy commissioner, Mike Rodriguez in episode 42, and the guest host of this episode, James Tynan himself, in episode 88, all there, waiting for you.
1: So, so you, so you, uh, this is quite amazing, isn't it? Because I think we've all lived this frustration. You know, we've all tried to put together a PowerPoint deck. We've all struggled with how annoying and difficult uh, it is. And then for all of the work that you put in, that it ends up being this kind of boring, horrible thing that then people refer to as death by PowerPoint. So so when did the penny drop for you that perhaps what you've hit on was something that you could change at a more systemic or a, a deeper level, rather than just teaching people what you know?
2: Yeah. I think in, in BCG is when I think I, I realized, um, I had this principal uh, who I was working with, who really actually, um, pushed me very hard on, on one of my last projects in, in BCG to, um, to pull together my design portfolio because I was showing it to him, and I, I told him very transparently uh, one day, hey, like his name is abhijit. Um, hey abhijit I just don't feel like coming into work every morning, like I'm not feeling motivated. How should we like? How, what do I do? And we were still like having a lot of fun on the project. Maybe, we and then I showed him like this design work that I was always sort of like thinking about, uh, and he said this makes a lot of sense. Like, I, I don't think you fully understand the fact that you will thrive in an environment where you combine these two skills. Like, you, you are quite an analytical person, but the real power comes from like how you package that, that analytical sort of thinking into this really creative um, visual sort of uh, way. And I think as he was saying all that to me, I realized like the last seven, eight years of my life just suddenly made sense. While I was sort of jumping in and out, people saw me jump in and out of like creative stuff on one side and like analytical stuff on another side, and people always thought I was choosing one or the other over over my life. But for me, it was it was a way of living. Right, the the two coexisted. Uh, I I just found like myself in the intersection of that always. And so um, as I as I got to the latter half of my BCG sort of life. I knew I wanted to get back into design. Uh, and I also knew at this point that uh, the way you tell stories is, is much more powerful than just presentations. It's not, not a trivialized thing. Um, and I saw the power of what, uh, what that can do in boardrooms. I had already seen the power of that in academics. Um, uh, and, and so I, I thought I, I, I kind of had realized the opportunity at that point. Um, I then came to Sydney. I still wanted to do design more like uh, seriously, became a designer here. Um, but then was surrounded by presentations like all over again. That that question just never stopped. Uh, every time I presented, people just asked me the same question over and over. And that's when I I think um, took the leap. I feel I I spent like about a year really obsessing over this problem of like why people are asking me this question and why why isn't a, a, like a template solving this, this problem? Why, why aren't like the hundreds of tools around us solving this problem? And I think the, the, the aha moment for me, and then I think Tejas played a really, really big role in, in highlighting this to me, something that was so obvious, was that it, the problem wasn't really that it is hard to make great presentations. Like great presentations are a pretty uh, crazy combination of information design, Uh, really strong substance, uh, very strong storylines. But the the true problem was that it was very easy to make just bad presentations right now. Uh, Somehow we've designed tools and formats that by default just lead to really, really bad outcomes. Uh, And we are in, in an epidemic of bad presentations. And even if you look around right now, the way say ai is being sort of used to solve this problem we are falling into the same trap again like bad information design existed before powerpoint ever came out like people were making bad graphics uh, but it was hard to make bad graphics because you had to sort of make them physically and so there were fewer bad graphics around people thought computers will come in and these softwares will come in and solve this problem but what that did was only aggravated the whole issue because you were now able to make thrash faster. Uh, and now I think the same is going to happen with AI. Unless we truly build a format, uh, a system that has constraints in it, that ensure that you just cannot create a bad
1: bad outcome. This is fascinating. And, and I should say, so Tijus is, is your co-founder, who is an absolute maven and weapon when it comes to productivity software. You know, has his own blog and kind of reviews all these different kind of, Uh, pieces of software he's on the cutting edge and so what he was saying to you was yes you are seeing the problem but perhaps the solution is is you can come at it from the other way so rather than trying to you know give people in, in some ways it's not just about giving people more capabilities it's also about kind of cutting off some of the the bad options that people come at essentially it's too easy right now to make terrible presentations that's really really interesting insight
2: yeah that's that's really what it is I think um yeah they they just surely more of a more of a founder than I am I feel like he keeps the academic and puristic side of me in in check a little bit uh but yeah I, I truly believe that that is the problem uh, and and a problem that not a lot of people are trying to solve, even in this space. I think, um, I truly believe that creativity thrives in a constrained environment. Uh, it, it, it's when you take care of all the stuff that people don't really want to make decisions on, uh, is when they get the ability to, to really kind of thrive and, and and explore on the stuff, on the substance that they,
1: they want to focus on, which is stories. It's interesting you, you, you're a man of kind of contradictions right you're this kind of on the one hand obsessed with visual design and beauty and on the other hand highly analytical and those are those are a package that don't come together very often but what you're saying is that actually the problem in presentations is, is one that has a, a similar kind of dichotomy where what we really need is this combination of constraints and power. You want people to be more powerful and also more constrained. And that's such an interesting kind of dichotomy. And I I wonder if you can explain a little bit about how you see that being possible, how do you constrain people and make them more powerful, uh, in building these presentations at the same time?
2: Yeah, percent. I think, um, you know Don Norman, the, the guy who wrote uh, Design of Everyday things, um, probably one of the most fundamental like design books out there, he, said, he has this like sentence he says technology is not neutral uh, it has it has properties, it has affordances, it makes some things easier, uh, it makes some things harder to do uh, and the easier ones always get done and the harder ones always get neglected. That is a conscious or maybe uh, an an involuntary sort of decision that the designers of the technology make. And somehow the problem is that we've made tools that just make it hard to to make good presentations and make it easy to make quite shitty presentations. So I think um, the crux of the problem is is that this is solvable through good design. Uh, If we put the right thoughtful constraints where people still find the experience intuitive, but their outputs are always um, at a very high bar of what one might call good information design, I think we would have solved the problem. It's not easy at all. Uh, It will take a long, long time. Uh, But I I surely believe that it's possible to uh, put in these sort of constraints to, to create create.
1: better, better Let's talk about some of these specifics, because at the the high level, I think that's it's such a beautiful statement, you know, technology is not neutral, it has a valence, we are kind of, uh, in some ways, a function of the tools that we're using. But like, let's talk about the specifics of how in PowerPoint and presentation software has led to uh, kind of a, a very horrible storytelling experience. I mean, one of them that comes to mind for me, is that powerpoint is this blank canvas where you can almost do anything uh and that freedom leads to people just dropping in these bullet point lists or they're kind of you know they're using they're not kind of aligning you know their the elements on the screen and so you're getting these kind of jumbled messes simply because the canvas kind of lets you do anything. And I'm wondering, is that something that is, is interesting to you in terms of that um, dichotomy?
2: Yeah, 100%. Like Edward Tufte uh, is like amazing information designer that I really love. Uh, he wrote this small sort of chapter on uh, the cognitive style of PowerPoint and basically just roasted PowerPoint for, for a good few pages. I, he says that um, somehow this this, this format of PowerPoint has led us led us to this behavior where the presenters are not really saying anything and the listeners are, are listening to nothing essentially. And I I, I think that's truly uh, the challenge. So PowerPoint today is designed the way visual design, like graphic design softwares are, 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 are made, right? You essentially draw and format shapes and text to end up with the output that you want to create the way i look at chronicle quite a hot take but if you don't have substance i want it easier uh, in in chronicle to detect that this presentation doesn't have substance right and i think that's the problem with powerpoint you can package garbage to make it look like it has a lot of things uh but that fluff is is just it's it's very very pointless so i think by putting in this structure this these constraints and taking away these Choices from the users around formatting, design, and letting the users, or almost forcing the users to focus on the substance, that is their storyline, their content. That's how I think we will solve the problem. Chronicle, on the other hand, can take care of how an information should be, should be portrayed. Uh, if you want to show market sizing, here's the best way to show it. It's interactive, it's amazing. The user doesn't have to go through that thought process. All they have to do is make the choice of saying i want to show
1: my size yeah as someone who has um has been a like lifelong user of presentation software it's, it's really relaxing to kind of hear that i can stand on the shoulders of the world's best information designers and just you know do that really easily and quickly in terms of how i do that within chronicle mm-hmm. that's Kind of we're kind of breaking news a little bit in that that's something that you guys have thought very deeply about you've looked at what other folks like notion and others are doing and you've come up with this this idea of the block and how is it that the block or using blocks to enable people to leverage information design is different than say templates like what is a block and why is it powerful the block is essentially the
2: output that we create so all all of this information design thinking combined with some sort of interactivity motion design is what is what's going to create like a great output right so let's take the example of the market sizing itself we can sit down and come up with with like a way to show market sizing that would like when you hover on it it will give you a deep dive you can click on it and it will be interactive and and so on and so forth all that to highlight the information better to land the message better, and to keep it really gracefully packaged, something that will just impress, but also communicate very effectively. right? We can come up with that in our own sort of way. We can make a Figma prototype out of it, and that would be extremely inconvenient for anyone to create in in PowerPoint, which is sort of the problem that I was running into back in those workshops, we, because I was trying to explain to people, here's how I make it, now, now you go make it as well. And people are like, how about no? I won't spend.
1: I don't really want to spend twenty hours on one page, Mahesh. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you can spend the twenty hours, and then you can make it available to me in seconds.
2: Right. So the the output of that like is essentially a block. Right. The block has just the right amount of customizability. It comes pre-designed with like the best interactions, the best motion design, and comes with this like thoughtfulness baked into it that this is going to be the right way to show this information, the right way to show market sizing. Um, You can, as a user, then just choose this block. The thinking after that is more traditional product design, which is what I think over the last 10, 20 years, um, the industry has just sort of mastered how to create good intuitive products that are centered around user behaviors, right? Um, Once we come up with this output, then the challenge becomes that of traditional sort of product design or interaction design, or UX as, as one might call it, um, where we need to figure out what's the best, easiest, fastest path for the user to choose this and insert it into their, their presentations. I think templates are a really good structure to start closer to that finish line, right? So in that, I think, I, I feel Canva is an amazing product because they've really built an amazing library of templates, we will end up doing similar stuff, but we don't want to be a visual design tool. Uh, we want to ensure people end up with great outputs and then they end up there faster. Uh, that's, that's a simpler problem to solve in, in my view. And um, yeah, one that we look at all these great examples like Notion, Figma, uh, they've all done great work. And I think- we
1: mm. from that. I mean, One of the differences I see between a template and a block is a template is ultimately kind of a flat Uh, almost finished design uh, that you need to kind of take or leave. Whereas a block, and that's like a a whole page or a, a whole presentation can be in a certain template. And often when I look at templates, it's really just like, hey, here's like a cool blue vibe for your presentation but it's not really it's helping you solve a visual look and feel but it's not helping you crack that core information design which is what you're talking about so it's very rare that i'd find a template that i think that is how i want to do uh you know market sizing or that is how i want to do this particular type of of information present this particular type of information um whereas a block you can exist within a particular you know, page and you can have multiple blocks on a page. And you can also decide within a block, oh, I'm gonna dump in my data and I'm gonna kind of select this block and then decide, no, it's, I actually don't wanna present that information like that. I prefer a different type of block. And that, that's not going to influence the rest of the, the template. I now don't have to like choose a different template. I can mix and match and change within this kind of block universe in a way that a template kind of locks me in. Is that fair to say?
2: That is exactly right. Like I, I think ultimately it comes down to what are the fundamental building blocks of this format? Every format, all the way from say something like Twitter or Instagram stories to PowerPoint, to like design softwares, they their, their fundamental characteristic is like, what is the atomic choice that you're making at, at the very bottom, right? In presentations today, that choice is, vectors like shapes and text i think that's what we want to change like it, it, it's basically forcing people to make these raw material choices so to change anything even if you start with a template your editing experience is going through like editing the shapes editing the text and so even if someone designs a really amazing looking like slide for you that'll be your starting point but as soon as you start customizing it and tailoring it and no two messages are the same you'll always Tailor something. I would want you to. Uh, your experience is always going to be that with with like riddled with design burden. So while people like don't really want these like raw material choices of font, colors, spacing, etc., they just want like the choice of their end output, right? And that's where blocks come in. You can't really. Someone has put in the thoughtfulness in in designing a block to say that these are the only three things you can customize. So. The experience we are trying to create is that of like putting widgets on your iPhone screen. Like right? Imagine you had to format the underlying like rectangle on every widget. Uh, that would be super annoying. That's how the experience is today. We are just creating the best widgets, the most fun, cool widgets, putting in the thought to say that this is, this is how this information should be portrayed in this widget. This is the interaction that should be in this widget. So it's not static. It has the right variants, right optionality in there so that you have a convenient experience and you don't have to go through this sort of pixel pushing that that you need to do on, on present.
1: So I have see a lot of presentations. And one of the things that I find amazing is that in this day and age where we have all of these different mobile devices and others, I'm still pinching and zooming on this non-mobile native presentation to kind of bring up the text or see something that's a little bit uh closer on the on the chart so we're we're kind of we've we've somehow locked ourselves into I remember you saying this uh a kind of a visual metaphor that was designed for the overhead projector you know like literally you know half a century ago there was this technology of putting a slide on a on a lamp that shone the shadow onto the wall and that was that was the overhead projector and that's the the metaphor that we're stuck in this flat thing that is that is unchangeable uh and it, you know it, that's kind of very frustrating isn't it it's
2: crazy that it's not even a metaphor so robert gaskins the guy who created uh, powerpoint uh, he has this book called sweating bullets in the book he says that there's this line by him he says um we created PowerPoint to design overhead projector slides, but it ended up replacing them. And they, they genuinely did not design it for as as a, as a format that will go into the sort of digital world and, and become the the default storytelling format, right? And it's kind of why we have this painful relationship with this with this format. It is widespread, very, very well adopted. I think PowerPoint, like like and this is how we started the, the podcast as well. I personally don't hate Powerpoint. I, I like it. I, I really like it because I'm, I feel it, is, it gives me the perfect amount of freedom uh, to use my combination of skill sets to, to tell stories effectively. Fortunately or unfortunately, 90% of the
1: world just doesn't work that way. And so, yeah, think, it's, fine if, it's fine if you've done master's level information design, mayor. <laughs> I think
2: it's just—it's too much freedom, and I think it has gotten—it has gotten more and more and more freedom over time. And the new formats that have come about have also given users just more and more freedom. And I think even today, uh, the the direct or indirect competitors that we have in the market, while they are somehow taking away freedom from users to some extent, I think the thought of like. Making sure that the cons- like thinking about consumption first is still not there in the market, and I think we also have a pretty long way to go for that because it's a very hard problem to solve. Thinking about how people consume information is actually pretty hard. Over the last ten years, that has dramatically changed as well. Like attention spans have just plummeted. Uh, I would say the most dominant storytelling format today is something like TikTok or Instagram stories. It's just the quick like bite-sized ephemeral storytelling that, that is dominant today. And in order to compete with that level of attention span, uh, uh, like kind of have that attention span and then do business presentations in that small narrow window is a, is a challenging thing. Uh, designing a format for that is going to be a pretty interesting exercise. Wow. So
1: that's kind of where, that's the problem space that we're living in. And I'm wondering, you know, as you think about the solution with Chronicle, what types of ideas excite you? You know, what can we do in this space?
2: Yeah, I've actually, I mean, Chronicle always started with that question of like how I design presentations, but over over the last year or so, um, being in this space, I truly see the opportunity in creating the modern format for telling stories, right? And I think that is just a bigger, broader remit, a bigger mission. Um, it is not only to ensure that the creator has the most convenient Uh, way to tell stories in a way that like Instagram stories have empowered hundreds of millions of people to do. Uh, We want to bring that to work uh, and and to businesses. Uh, I think on the other side it is also to create a really thoughtfully designed format for consumption and storytelling Uh, and and us as humans have done that over time. Uh, Started with like things like cave paintings, we went to stained glasses, we went to this like um, Chrome. we went to overhead projector slides, we went to PowerPoint. And I think there is a logical evolution uh, that is just a step change from, from where we are today. I think the biggest board that Microsoft missed in my view on PowerPoint is not just creating a better PowerPoint, it's actually to create the medium equivalent of, of PowerPoint, somewhere that people can go and share their stories. Uh, and people are hacking that, like, People are dying to tell business stories. Uh, look at the stuff that people post on LinkedIn. Give people a better way to communicate information and and, and stories easily and conveniently. I think that has the opportunity to to really explore. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, and well, and you start. You hinted at this in a couple of your previous answers, but I did want to ask you the explicit question. You know, you've been thinking a lot about generative AI and the role that it plays in storytelling and. There are some folks out there kind of integrating it into various different products. How do you see, you know, generative AI actually assisting people in telling stories? And what do you think the dangers are in uh, in folks kind of recklessly just whacking it into, you know, PowerPoint or or whatever else?
2: Yeah, I might get a lot of flack for this this response. But I think, I don't think AI is the solution to information design, really. Um, AI is very powerful. I'm one hundred percent sure. Chronicle it all like Chronicle's existing version has generative AI and a lot of it, uh, but it, it is designed and it is powerful to solve a certain problem. Users run into like sort of blocks when they are thinking. Uh, users find it extremely tedious to summarize large pieces of information. Uh, people like me who are not very articulate just cannot write a slide title that's one sentence. So I think there. Generative AI has tremendous applications. It needs to be packaged thoughtfully though, otherwise, we'll end up with the same sort of problem where all your presentations would look like five bullet points, a colorful image that is generated by AI, but it is really not saying anything. Like just being able to get there faster doesn't mean we've solved this problem of like bad information design. So I think fundamentally the way we look at it in Chronicle is our mission is still to build this format. That is a more human-led information design endeavor. Uh, we can be thoughtful, of, we don't need AI for it, to be honest. We can always apply AI to that problem, but it can be done with five people sitting in a room and asking the question, okay, what's the best way to show a profitability chart? And then coming up with the right designs for it. I think that is that is a more fun uh, human like way to solve that problem. Once we do that, getting the user to that endpoint surely has a lot of applications for AI, and I think that's where we will apply it. So I, I don't think Chronicle is an AI-powered presentation tool, at least today. Uh, maybe I'll shoot myself in the foot by saying that. But um, I think it, it will it will use AI for a very specific part of the journey, but fundamentally, uh, the, the constraints, the boundary conditions, the freedoms that the users have those will be taught and designed by us. They'll be opinionated. They'll be not for, they, they won't be right for everyone. Uh, they'll be our choices. Uh, and people who like those choices will, will use comedy, I, think. I,
1: I That is very kind of counterintuitive thinking. And, and I think it's really interesting, but it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning, which is at the end of the day, one of the reasons that we've ended up with this horrible death by PowerPoint situation is a fundamental lack of constraints. When you lower the bar, so and you make it very easy to create bad presentations, that's what you get. And I think what I'm hearing from you is, is not that AI doesn't have a role. It's that if the role is just to lower the bar even further and make make people even less constrained, so that they put even less thought into their presentations, then that's what we're going to get more of. So I think we're coming to the end of this uh, of this interview, but I did want to ask you a couple of Rapid-fire questions because you are one of the most interesting people I talk to uh, on a regular basis, and I wanted to ask you, what's a, a quote or a person who inspires you? Like I said, I think um, Edward Tufte would surely be be someone.
2: Um, I think uh, just reading reading so many things about information design lately that that's that's what's always on my mind. Um, he has a lot of amazing. Um, uh, quotes on on just information design. I think um, the one that I've I've recently been obsessed with is is however Alan de Botton. He says this interesting thing in his book, which is uh, if beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder, uh, what happens when the when the beholder looks elsewhere? And I think that's very relevant to chronicles as well, uh, in in a in a bit more
1: poetic romantic way. Yeah. That's that's deep नरेश. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that one for a while. Uh okay, last question. You know, what's what's a fun uh, non-financial investment you've made either in time or or you know, just something that you've you've bought um that has been a really great investment for you. It's an interesting question.
2: I think I I think one of the best investments that I've made over the last eight years, I don't think I've been invested in anything for more than more than eight years, other than presentations, I suppose. Uh, has been uh, writing letters to people. Um, at the end of every year, I write like a handful of letters to people that have been the closest to me. I spend like a long time like writing these letters throughout the year. Uh, so I keep writing throughout the year, and at the end of it, I I send these people those letters. Uh, some people get letters twice in a year. Uh, sorry, twice in a row or so on. Some people I never even talk to after. But I think um, writing these letters has been like a, a pretty magical investment. I want to continue doing that for the.
1: That's amazing. What do you feel like it kind of catalyzes for you? I mean, I think it would be lovely to receive a, a letter, but for for you and your practice, what do you feel like you get out of it?
2: I think uh, slowly, I've uh, I've started falling in. <laughs> In love with how I write as well. I think that's uh, that's a nice byproduct of it. But I I feel um, some of the best things that we feel for people that are very everyday and trivial just never get voiced out. And I think sharing that, letting people know that is is uh, is nice. I I think not a lot of people have received letters in their life in in today's day and age. So I think uh, it always brings out a, a very interesting reaction. Uh, one that's very authentic. Right more than
1: most famous I love it I absolutely love it well that's a perfect place to leave it um, so thank you for the time and uh, yeah I'm looking forward to I'm, I'm going to start writing letters to people in my life as well now so I think you, you've inspired me to do that mm-hmm. so thanks Mayoresh uh, we'll catch you soon thank you thank you so much James. thanks a lot cheers
0: I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and continue to be one percent better if you're enjoying the show I'd love to hear from you You can either share a rating or review on your podcast app or contact me directly by email or any of our social media pages. All links are in the show notes. Talk soon.